part of what happens to them is when they live 15, 20, 30 years in a particular mode, and the mode is, I'm going to live, to quote Parker Palmer for a moment, divided, where, quote, I'm going to leave that shit at the door, the fact that I lost both my grandmothers, right? I'm going to live that. And then what ends up happening is you, you spend 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, divided, where the inner part of who you are and the outer experience of what you are are so out of sync. And then you haven't been socialized with language to say, hey, I feel like shit right now. Right. Just that. It doesn't have to be a therapy session. Right. Then all of a sudden the systems start breaking down. The personas start breaking down. And you end up in crisis. Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. We are so glad you're here. Welcome again to the Reboot Podcast. I am Dan Putt. I have two daughters, a three-year-old and a seven-month-old. And for anyone who has kids these ages or has had kids these ages, you know my life right now is full of chaos, exhaustion, constantly attending to the needs of others, and Minnie and Mickey Mouse. Lots and lots of Mickey and Minnie Mouse in my life. But you also know this is a time full of questions. Questions for my curious three-year-old and questions for myself, such as how am I showing up as a parent in the ways I do and don't want? How do I keep my girls safe? And a new one I've really been sitting with. What do I most want for these girls that I love so much? The easiest way we answer that question as parents is to just say we want our kids to be happy. But I've come to think about that differently. Last year in the Reboot Slack channel, someone posted an article about optimizing the workplace for happiness. And it really struck a chord with me, and I couldn't help myself from ranting on it. The notion that we optimize for happiness feels incredibly misguided, and perhaps even dangerous. And it really misses what I would say is the ultimate goal, wholeness. I actually eventually turned that rant into a Medium post, where I wrote, Happiness is just one part of our existence. Wholeness is to embrace all that is within us. It's to embrace our shadow qualities, to embrace our self-doubt, our fear, our anxiety, as well as the brightness, the joy, and the curiosity. It is all welcome. To welcome and embrace our wholeness is to welcome and embrace all that makes us human. It is to allow our employees, and I would add my daughters, and ourselves the full human experience. It is to allow ourselves to be human. So to my daughters, this is my wish for you, that you embrace and welcome all parts of yourselves, all parts that make you human, and embrace it for others too. And I want you to know that a big reason I do the work at Reboot is I hope that in some small way, I can support the work of organizations who will someday embrace your wholeness too. It turns out that thinking about your employees as human beings and treating them as such is not just the right thing to do. It's a path to better organizations something our guest knows very well. Nancy Loveland, CEO of Crisis Text Line, a nonprofit that provides 24-7 support, free support, for the human condition, is a successful serial social entrepreneur. 
Her journey as a CEO has been one towards a more authentic and human style of leadership, one where she began to see embracing her team's humanity was not only a better way to lead, but it was a lot more fun too. In this candid and fascinating conversation with Jerry, Nancy talks about embracing her wholeness as a leader, what it means to be a social entrepreneur and being human-centric in this world full of chatbots, numbers, OKRs, and KPIs. Enjoy. I'm John Greenfield, and I lead people operations and business development here at Psychic. The Circle's experience as a whole has been great. What I said to Dan was secret superpower. I feel like I've got this invisible group of people supporting me at my job and, you know, in some ways, different life. It's a neat little secret for me that you have that extra support. If you think Circle's might be the right thing, trust that feeling. Find your secret superpower like John with your own Reboot Circle. Groups are filling quickly for fall, including those for head of people, CTOs, CEOs, and more. To learn more and apply, go to reboot.io slash circles. Hey, Nancy, it's really great to see you. And thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Can we take, take a minute and just sort of introduce yourself, mostly so folks can get used to your, to, to your voice and because, of course, we don't want them confusing your voice with my voice. So. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Uh, well, they won't confuse us because I will not be quoting any poetry. Uh, so, <laughs> so um, other than that, we sound exactly the same. Uh, I'm Nancy Lublin. I'm funnier than people expect me to be. There you go. You are and, indeed. Um, I, I am. And I'm a social entrepreneur, which basically just means I'm an entrepreneur facing all of the same issues that all of your your other friends and clients and people on this have faced, except I will never make any money. <laughs> so I just keep starting not for, I mean, some of them are never going to make money too, I guess. But yeah, I, um, I start not for profits. I keep, I keep doing this social change thing. Right, right. And so, and so I'll, I'll quote some poetry. No, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> I'll quote some, some, I'll make note that the social return that you get, and I'll say it out loud, is pretty fucking awesome. Thanks. Yeah. And, and I appreciate you starting the not-for-profits that you start. Thanks. I, um, I love what I do. I mean, I, in that introduction, I guess I said it, one of the, look, when I first met you, one of the many chips on my plate that I had to work through with you was the sort of inferiority complex of running not-for-profits as opposed to for-profits mm -hmm. that I think I internalized and that comes from the external world. I mean, amen. You know, people still think that because I run a not-for-profit, that means they should reach me at one o'clock at home because I must be watching Days of Our Lives. <laughs> and um, so I, I, yeah, I love what I do and yeah. don't apologize for it. Yeah. And that somehow you wouldn't understand how to read a balance sheet or figure out a marketing <laughs> plan, which is hysterical. Yeah, it's actually kind of adorable because I think it'd be super fun to run one of these big fat for profits with their big fat marketing budgets and, you know, to be able to recruit people by throwing equity in their face and, you know, uh, I don't know, um, lunch. Yeah. And instead what I do, um, I don't have any of those bells and whistles. 
Like right. the quality of management becomes that much more acutely important. Mm-hmm. Um, the product, the UX, like we can't, we can't bribe people. Um, and you may come to a not-for-profit because you believe in the mission, but you'll leave because of bad management. Yeah. And so it's really important that we get it right. I don't, yeah. bribing is not something a not-for-profit can do and for-profits do it all the time. Don't tell me that everybody at Palantir is happy. <laughs> I cannot, they're I not. can attest they're not. Yeah, you know, they're not. Some of them are just, they're just really well compensated. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think it would be great if we talked about your latest not-for-profit. Um, and you know, we had dinner a couple of weeks ago and we were bouncing around and it just, it just dawned on me that the folks who follow this podcast, really the folks who kind of are, are bought into their, what we're trying to do here at Reboot, um, really need to hear this story. And so the not-for-profit, the current not-for-profit, because there's always, there's always one right in the past and there's another one that you're cooking because I know you girl, right? Is crisis text line. Tell us what Crisis Text Line is. Crisis Text Line is free 24-7 support at your fingertips. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not an app. And so we don't want you to have to go through the friction of downloading something new. Maybe you'll need it. What, you'll keep it on your phone next to Tinder and Instagram? I don't think so. So um, instead, we want to be where you are already. So it's via text. It's via Facebook Messenger. Um, you can find us in YouTube and Kick and After School. We want to be everywhere people are. So eventually, it's easier to get help than it is to avoid getting help. I think um, that's a really powerful point there. Yeah. Right now, it's not still kind of easy to avoid it. Yeah. In, in a sense, it's kind of, I feel a kinship to the mission in that sense, which is making it easier to get help than to avoid getting help. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. That's and right. so, so, but let's get real specific. What's the kind of help that people are getting and what are they reaching out for? And, and then I, I'd love to hear the creation story, you know, yeah. the backstory here. So it's, um, it's crisis intervention. I mean, it's real in the moment, heat of the moment, you're in that hot spot and we get you to a safety plan to what we call a cool calm. Mm -hmm. So it's not therapy. Um, it's not a long-term engagement. It's not a replacement for your best friend. It's, um, a panoply of issues. It's, it's everything. So it's not just suicide, but it's depression, anxiety, opioid addiction. We see a lot of self-harm and cutting Mm -hmm. eating disorders, um, bereavement, a lot of grief. Uh, we see all of the issues. Frankly, most we're, we're, most humans experience a mixture of issues. So we're not one thing. Um, we're not specialists in one thing. We're here to do all of it. And it is entirely by text. Um, uh, conversations last typically around 45 minutes. The sweet spot is between 40 and 60 messages exchanged. Most of our volume comes at night between 10 p.m. and 4 a.m. when you don't really have another avenue. Uh, I will say that 30% of our messages are about suicide and depression. That is our biggest group. After that, anxiety is the next most common thing we see. And then self-harm. So um, I thought when we launched it was all going to be about bullying. Right. I had seen every episode of Glee. I really thought that was the big epidemic in America. And it is terrible. Um, but um, it's only about three percent of our messages. Mm. So, you know, you just shared something which it didn't even dawn on me. But of course, it makes total sense, which is that um, the, the, the realization that this this is about a mixture of things and that 
for example, and there's no necessarily narrative arc here, but there's a mm. connection between anxiety, depression, self-harm, perhaps suicidal ideation, perhaps bullying, perhaps bereavement. Insomnia. Insomnia. Like there's a light bulb that just went off for me, which, you know, sounds obvious now that I say it out loud, but yeah, of course. Yep. Right. And there, there's, there's, um, I think sometimes the dialogue that exists around these moments is that in some ways we, it may be easier for us to compartmentalize them. Absolutely. Right. So and there's a the way, suicide prevention that's right. line. Go that's ahead. right. And by the way, not just for us, the way that we've all functioned, but for the funding space in the not-for-profit world, it was, well, I fund suicide or I fund eating disorders. One of the really interesting challenges for us is, well, we're, we're new. That's not how we're going to function. We're not in one swim lane. Mm-hmm. Um, and so funders would look at us and say, well, you don't exactly fit in my bucket. And I would say, no shit, new things don't fit old buckets. And I think a lot of people who imagine new companies, whether they're for profit or not for profit, one of those early stumbling blocks is if you're doing it in a new way, of course, it's unfamiliar to people. Mm-hmm. And so um, it has been a switch that has had to flip in a lot of people's heads. The idea of an all-in-one, one-stop shop, all crisis intervention. Can I jump in on that point? Please, please. Not only does this require a switch in the funding mentality, but what I'm hearing you talk about is you're treating the human condition. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And so if they want a baseline common denominator, do you help human beings? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, here, here's the other thing is the... Um, how this was born, you asked me about yeah. the origin story. This was born user-centric. And um, I happen to think that the best tech startups are obviously are user-centric. They're not, you don't make them because technology makes it possible for you to make purple ketchup or possible for you to, I don't know, geolocate best on, um, I don't know, eyebrow shape or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like right. that's, that's really adorable, but do people really want it? Is that how people function? And then people go out and do user testing. We did it the opposite way. We were triaging this out of my former organization. So this was born as an edge case of an existing platform. All right. So just briefly tell us what the former yeah. organization was. Yeah. So or is. Was, right. right. Yeah. So I was the CEO of do something.org. Um, it is now the largest organization for young people in America. It's about 5.7 million members. That's wow. bigger than Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts combined wow. in the U.S. Um, and the reason it got so big is because uh, we texted with young people, you really only text with your parents and your friends. Like there are not a lot of brands who are texting you in part because um, of the way the mobile carriers treat text. They make money still on text. And so they block all spam. You remember, I mean, I'm going to embarrass you, but you, you and I are old enough to remember email spam. Remember all those Viagra emails? Yeah. Okay. Yep. I remember them too. So I'm yep. not, does not get the statement on Jerry and Viagra. <laughs> I got those emails too. And, and then, or the emails from like the Nigerian prince who lost mm-hmm. his wallet in the cab, right. send me $500. I'll send you back 5 million. Right. right. So those killed email. We all created junk folders, spam, blah, blah, blah. Uh, the mobile carriers do not want that to happen to text. So they are blocking 80% of the messages being sent to you right now. You're only seeing 20% of your text messages right now. Thank goodness. Because what it means is that when you opt in to your family, to your friends, to do something.org, you trust them. Mm. So text has a 97% open rate. Right. 
because there's that trust. So because of that, when do something would send out a text message, it would get opened 97% open rate because you trusted do something. People started sharing things with do something, having nothing to do with do something campaigns, but about their personal life, like that they were being bullied or that their best friend was addicted to crystal meth. And so we would triage it with, okay, hey, here's a, here's a hotline number. Talk to your mom, talk to your principal. Can, can we then, just pause on that? Yeah. Just pause on that. So I'm a do something employee. Oh yeah. And I get this text message. What was that like for them? Jerry, you were the first person to ask me that. And it is a huge part of this arc. Um, really fucking hard. Like this was not part of the job. Do something employees are really special, passionate people, right? You to be a 20 something and choose to go do like campaigns and social chains means you're an inherently optimistic person, right? And, like you just and empathetic. And empathetic. Yeah. Um, you're you're really concerned about the state of the world. And so yeah, it was painful. And on this day, I remember an employee printed out this one message that came from a girl that said, He won't stop raping me. It's my dad. He told me not to tell anyone. And then the letters, are you there? She printed uh, it out, brought it to me and didn't say, and she just put it down on my desk and said, I don't know what to do with this one. And I read it, you know, sometimes when like you read something and you, you're so shocked, I read it like four times over and was like, wait, what? And cause it was horrifying. And then also shocking that someone would share something so deeply personal with us. Right. Like how desperate and alone do you have to feel to send something like that? So um, we sent her the phone number for Rain, great rape and incest organization. The next day I came in and said, what happened? Did we hear from her? No. I said, send it to her again. Yeah. And the truth of the matter is this was five and a half years ago now. And I've personally taken that phone number and tried to call it, tried to text it. And I've never heard back from her. Do some things, never heard back from her. And I don't know if it was a burner phone. I don't know if her father saw that message. And honestly, Jerry, I don't know if she's dead or alive. And I talk about her all the time because I really hope that she is somewhere and she has heard what she inspired. Mm Um, because she is absolutely the inspiration for crisis text line. Yeah. And tell me about the employee. So, um, the employee actually, I asked to help do this with me. And if she wanted to sort of co-found this with me and she helped, um, sort of, uh, come up with the framework for how this might work. And then she eventually left do something and is somewhere else and apparently thriving in her job. Um, but, and there were other employees who were helpful along the way. And, and let me also confess, cause I was working with you at the time. So you remember this. Mm-hmm. I didn't initially go to crisis text line full time. I remember. This was not one of those like epiphanies that every entrepreneur and then says, oh yeah, you know, I chucked everything and took out a mortgage and put everything behind this. I wasn't sure that I could handle the emotional strength that was going to be needed for this. And I didn't think that I had the empathy to do this. And, um, so I raised the money and I hired the first couple of people and then I hired someone to run it. And I I was just, I was just the board chair. And I thought, okay, this is like, this is such a neat and tidy solution. What a great way to be an entrepreneur. (laughs) And that's just not that it didn't work. Um, She was because, because a baby needs its mommy, right? Like you can't really, there's not really a replacement for that person. And so, um, so well, can, can, can I jump in on that point? Sure. 
A baby needs its mommy for sure. And this needed Nancy. Okay, you have superpowers. Now I feel like I'm back on your couch. Here we go. You're crying, not me. Why are you crying? Because I always cry. Because I because I give a shit. Right? And I see my friend, someone I admire, applying her superpowers to a really important problem. And and I would argue that, you know, like I think of my work at Reboot and I say it's the culmination of years and years of kind of circling in to what I'm supposed to do in my life. And who knows if this is the same thing for you, but it feels like that. It does. I mean, it does. To me, what I'm doing is um, I'm applying all the stuff I've learned in tech about leading a tech company and solving problems with product instead of solving problems with people, you know, like that you just think product first and thinking about scalable solutions and thinking about building an internal culture. I'm applying all of that to this really... um, powerful human problem. Yeah. It's not like finding Chinese food at two o'clock in the morning in a new city or getting like a car faster in the rain. It's this, like last night I was on the platform taking conversations. And for 45 minutes, I was talking to a mom of three who was suicidal. Uh, and and you're was, a mom of two. And I'm a mom, like I'm a mom, I'm a mom of two, but, uh, but, but yeah, but yeah. like, and she was really, she was just at her wits end. And, and, I will never talk to her again. I don't know her real name. She doesn't know my real name, but she was telling me things that she's never shared with another human being. And it was raw and the platform was like functioning perfectly. Mm -hmm. And I was able to talk in global chat to the other crisis counselors to say, Hey guys, can you help me help her? Mm -hmm. And I was able to flag for my supervisor. Am I doing the right thing here? And Mm -hmm. like the, all of the technology was working, you know, beautifully to enable me to get this woman through one of the worst nights of her life. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it feels feels really good, Jerry. You know, it's it, and, and what I want to bring attention to just in this moment, you know, like I am an old guy, right? <laughs> um, as, as I like to joke, I was at the Windows 1.0 press briefing. Okay, that's how freaking old I am. Okay, that's amazing. Okay, so it it was written in hieroglyphics. Okay, and you took Eastern Airlines to get there. Very good. (laughs) And 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 I think about the arc of technology develop, and 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 you know, sitting in the seat that I'm sitting in, I get all this. God love them; they're really well intended apps that are designed to help. And what and that story that you just told, what I like about it is. At the other end of the conversation was was another human being. It wasn't a chatbot. It wasn't AI that was routing it to some sort of sort of information. It was what you were doing was what I think we're supposed to do with technology: enhance the human experience. So that's right. So that, by the way, so that's right. We could do this by chatbot. Our data corpus is large enough. It's already more than 33 million messages. We can layer on predictive analytics. We could do this by chatbot. I mean, we could. We've got the AI and NLP and the the volume, variety, velocity to be able to to do this. 
And we've made a conscious decision not to. Um, our board, all of us sat down and said, we are what we call a human first yeah. organization. And our philosophy is that technology and data are here to make the humans faster and more accurate, but not to replace us. So faster and more accurate. Let me give a great example. My favorite Please. example of this, we mm -hmm. talked about this over gender, but my favorite example of this is how we stack rank based on severity. So um, when we first built the algorithm, we the guys here were really smart, and they loaded in words like die, suicide, overdose. And said, if these words show up in the first couple of messages, make that that uh, person first in the queue, right? We should take that person first, like a like a hospital emergency room, right? Yeah. Where the gun, should, gun yeah, triage, gunshot wound should be taken before the kid with a sprained ankle. Wow. Makes total sense. I wish all customer service worked this way. <laughs> right. So, so um, anyway, so that was working pretty well. And then last summer, we layered on a machine learning um, algorithm and found that actually there are thousands of words and word combinations, so n-grams, bigrams, trigrams, that are more powerful than the word suicide. So um, there's one family of words that's 16 times more likely for us to end up triggering an act of rescue, so calling 911, than the word suicide. So do you want to guess? Do you remember what that word is? I think I don't. I don't. Yeah. So, so think about it. When we trigger an act of rescue, it's when someone has the ideation, the plan, the means, and the timing. So that's really the definition of um, imminent risk for either suicide or homicide. Mm. So what do you think the, the, the words are that are most likely for us to go through that four-part risk assessment and say, oh, shit, we got to call 911. This is about to go down. Hopeless. Lack of choice. Um, I have no other uh, thing. I don't What's know. What's the most common drug in your house? Uh, Advil. Yep. Mm. Advil. Tylenol. Ibuprofen. Aspirin. So they're, they're right in reach. If you've got the ideation and the plan, you've already thought about how to do it and, and you own that stuff. And it's, it's within five feet of you right now, wherever you're listening to this, like right. everybody has access to this. And if you've thought that through, you're, this is means that you're at imminent risk. Turns out that the unhappy face crying emoji four mm -hmm. times more likely for us to trigger an active rescue than the word suicide. And we also discovered through this algorithm the hashtag KMS, which we'd never heard of before. Kill myself. Uh, so this is an example of technology and data being used to make humans better. And so we loaded all of this in, and now we handle those what we call code orange conversations, those imminent risk conversations, in 39 seconds. Right. That's, that's what I think all of these skills should be used for. So I'm going to, I'm going to envision that, that, that person on the other end of the line. Yep. In code orange. Yep. Being responded to by, by someone who gives them a feeling of not, of them not being alone. That's right. It gives them a feeling of being understood within 39 seconds. Within 39 seconds, they're connected with a human who's going to do that, who has been trained. These are all volunteers. We haven't talked about that, but they're all volunteers who have been trained in like what empathy is and how to actually do it. Mm. Um, uh, the training is pretty terrific. Like, you must be you reading poetry to them. Oh, fuck no. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, the, uh, but there's things that you do that you're, you're kind of, you know, uh, a master of mm. like validation, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and you validate in a way that we actually teach people to validate, which is one of the ways that you validate is you hear their pain, you reflect it back to them mm-hmm. and you level it up one degree. Mm-hmm. So if I were to say I had a really bad day, you had a really, respond, really tell me about day. your horrible day. Yeah. yeah. If I was saying like, I'm really sad today, you would respond with, tell me what's got you feeling so rough. Right. So that's, that's how you validate. So there's, we're actually also putting again, the science and data behind empathy. We know, for example, that why questions, <laughs> why did you make this are terrible, totally yeah. useless questions. They sound condescending, kind of arrogant, like an accusation. It can trigger how, all sorts of defensiveness. Totally. Yeah, yeah. How questions, super useful. Yeah. We know that the words smart, proud, and brave are like the best words you could use with someone in crisis. I think I used one of those words with you today. <laughs> you use them all the time. <laughs> right. right. You're really smart, Jerry. You should feel really proud. Well, I'm, I'm brave in the way I learned. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, th- I think this is incredible data and, and such an incredible experience. Um, I think back to my own times of crisis, you know, uh, as I've told the story before, my first major bout of suicidal ideation and depression was really in my late teens. And, uh, you know, while I'm super happy with the way my life has turned out, I'm curious as what would have happened if I had crisis text line back then, you know, I, I may not have actually taken the actions that I took. I still would have had the feelings. Yeah. Right. But I may not have taken the actions that I took. And, and, and again, I'm grateful uh, for the work I'm doing. I want to go, I want to take this in, in a slightly different direction and talk about some of the things we, we've already bounced around, which is, so we reboot, we sort of put ourselves out there and we have this conversation about being vulnerable, being authentic, being real. And, you know, as you know, because you've been on the receiving end of a lot of this, um, I think that that's actually the best way to lead. You know, we joke all the time that better humans make better leaders, right? Mm -hmm. Remarkable thing. And one of the things, not unlike, I think, your experience with Do Something, is we start getting uh, inquiries that are are unexpected. And, And at this point, they're coming in about once every two weeks, maybe even once a week. And it usually goes like this. Someone at our company either attempted or committed suicide. What do we do? Which is around a kind of bereavement question. Mm -hmm. And the second piece to that is how come we didn't see this coming? Mm -hmm. And the not seeing this coming, I think embedded in your data may be some additional ways that we could quote unquote, see this coming. And I want to be careful in this moment because I don't want to make the, the, those who survive the situation to feel responsible, especially if they're not directly connected to it. But the feeling of being responsible and the helplessness is really powerful for those who are around the person in crisis. Yeah. And so I guess this is a long winded entry into how do we expand this? Because I, I think the primary audience are teens, young adults, but there's no reason. I mean, you were talking to a mom of three last night. Yeah, that's right. No, that's right. So 75% of our users are under age 25. Um, and of the over 25, 
um, it's a greater percentage male than of the under 25. So we are getting, um, which is really important because actually middle-aged men are the ones most likely to die by suicide. So um, I, I just want to pause on that. That's an important statistic. People don't oh, realize they don't. It's yeah. the, it's the 35 to 60 year old men. Right. You guys don't go to doctors. You don't raise your hand and say, Hey, I'm in pain. You don't That's talk right. about this stuff. That's right. And so to me, crisis text line is a phenomenal solution. Like you could be texting in the middle of a meeting. You could be texting us about an anxiety attack and nobody around you would know it's perfectly private. Right. So I, I, um, I um, there is a, there's a really important book by a guy named Terrence real. And the title of the book is, I just don't want to talk about it. And it's men and depression. And by the way, this isn't talking, it's texting. Right. So, so I think this is it's a great solution for the startup, for startup culture, right. um, where there is this I mean, massive stigma. I will say that the rising generation, the, the world is just going to be better when these kids take over. I'm, I'm really, I'm long on this generation because they don't have the stigma around mental health issues that the middle-aged people have. Right. Right. Um, so, so to get back to this, cause I, I think you're mm. also asking for practically how should mm. coworkers and managers That's right. respond to these high intensity situations? Um, so I'll just say like, I've, I've been there too, right? When mm. I was the CEO of, of do something.org at one point in time, we had 70 employees and only 10 of them were over the age of 30. Right. And all of those 20-somethings were going through death of a parent for the first time, falling in and out of love for the first time, some questions about um, sexual and gender identity, um, getting an apartment for the first time, going through a breakup for the first time. And actually, in part during my work with you um, one-on-one, I, I really got to a place where I've decided that those aren't challenges. That was that is the best part of my job, mm. that it's a privilege to lead people while they're going through this unbelievable formulative time in their life. I'm, I'm, I'm almost 46. I've got two kids. I'm going to be married to my husband probably for my whole life. Mm. I'm, like my big moments are kind of done. I'm, I'm like, I'm cake that's already kind of risen in the oven. Um, you can stick a fork in me and put some frosting on me and I'll still be delicious, but I'm pretty much done. But all of those 20 somethings are just rising and figuring out what kind of cake they are. Okay. I'm clearly hungry, but um, (laughs) it's Passover. So I'm using a cake metaphor. Oh my goodness. But, um, and I think it's really a privilege to lead those people then, but you have to start with that as your basis. These mental health and not even mental health or behavior health, these human issues are a privilege for you to lead and manage, not a challenge, not a responsibility. If you start by thinking about your employees and your coworkers as human beings rather than employees and coworkers, um, you're going to miss less. You're going to be a better leader. You're going to be more authentic. You're going to have a, a much happier workplace. Um, I'm sitting here beaming with pride. You know that. (laughs) And I will just say, it's not easy. Like, I don't always get it right. Amen. It's incredibly challenging. And and, and it demands of you that you rise to the occasion. Because even though you think you're fully baked, you're still rising. 
course I am. And I'm still, especially with these millennials who present with all kinds of things that I never thought about or encountered. Cutting, like self-harm, I never saw when I was in my 20s. And now I see it. Um, and let me just say this, this request that I'm making of leaders and of managers to, to think of people as humans and bring your whole self and recognize their whole self is fucking exhausting. I get home at night and I am spent. I am a couch potato. I watch more television (laughs) and Netflix. Oh my gosh. I just lie there and eat ice cream. I mean, Mm. truly. Um, but I'm really happy. And my companies are productive and for the people who buy into this. And by the way, there are some employees for whom they're like, Nancy was all up in my business and I, that's not the right work environment for me. I need to be at a place where I can just clock in and clock out nine to five. And that's fine. Um, I don't think there's, you know, I, I'm not the, the perfect leader for everyone, but I have a family of crisis text line and do something and mm. some former, you know, dress for success, um, and coworkers, which who, was your first not for profit. My first thing. Yeah. Who like, I mean, I will bleed for, right. and you know, I'm the first person they tell when they're pregnant or gender transitioning. And it's because they know like I'm there for them and right. I will put my whole self behind What's going on? I'll, I'll tell you a quick little story from this morning. I, I had a conversation with a client, uh, uh, CEO struggling um, with some very specific issues with a particular employee. And, and we were talking about language that he wanted to use. And he said, you know, I think what I'm going to say to him is, as your friend, I said, stop. Nope. Yeah. Okay. If you start off a conversation with, as your friend, what you're actually doing is distinguishing and you're, right. you're, you're, I said, why don't you just start the conversation being their friend? And yeah. he, he laughed and he said, Oh, that's a lot easier. I said, yes. And it's going to require your human heart to be present. Yeah. The idea that there's a difference between work and personal is just a silly fallacy We're mm-hmm. we are whole people. Um, and by the way, I learned this, um, because somebody taught it to me because I had a COO at do something who made me a better leader. Mm-hmm. So, um, Aria finger, uh, who was my COO pulled me aside once about, uh, eight years ago and said, um, what's going on? You're mean. And I was mm-hmm. like, what? And she's like, what's going on with you? And I, I cried there in the office in a conference room with glass walls. That was an awesome moment. Mm-hmm. And, um, yes, it was, it was, yeah, it was, it was. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I said, what you don't know is in the last six weeks, I've actually lost both of my grandmothers. And I was very close with each of them. And this is a hard time. And she said, like, I had no idea. And I said, well, you know, it was personal. I didn't think it mattered for everybody. And I'm leading. And I was so fucking wrong. And she was like, Nancy, this is part of like who you are and what's going on with you. You have to share that with us. It's okay to be vulnerable. And I looked at her and I said, God, I want to be more like you. You are like positive and authentic um, she comes from a family where her, her parents are divorced and probably get along better than my parents who have been married for 50 right. years. You know, So right. she comes from this unbelievable communicative family and background and she's made me a better leader. And I chose on that day to make my operating system kindness. Mm-hmm. Um, and that to just, which, in, which requires you to be vulnerable and honest with yourself and everyone else, but kindness Mm-hmm. And, um, it was a muscle I had to develop. Yep. I remember. So, yep. For a while I had to stop myself and be like, Oh, don't judge. Mm-hmm. Um, but like open your heart 
and now it's really like natural to me and to kind of think the best of people and just kind of love harder when someone is struggling. Like my quarterly reviews with people are not about OKRs or KPIs. For the company, we focus on KPIs. Yeah. I mean, we have a Slack channel where every morning at 7 a.m. we all see the same KPIs. But in my quarterly reviews with my team, it's what do you want to achieve this quarter content-wise and what do you want to achieve methodologically, which might mean like get more sleep or like go take your wife on a date. Um, but it's those quarterly things are much more human than goal oriented, if that makes sense. It makes total sense. And I want to bring it full circle to that group of startup executives that we were just talking about before. So in my experience, part of what happens for them, and I don't have any data other than anecdotal to back this up, but part of what happens to them is when they live 15, 20, 30 years in a particular mode, and the mode is, I'm going to live, to quote Parker Palmer for a moment, divided, mm-hmm. where, quote, I'm going to leave that shit at the door. The fact that I lost both my grandmothers, yeah. right? I'm going to live that. And then what ends up happening is you, you spend 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, divided, where the inner part of who you are and the outer experience of what you are are so out of sync And then you haven't been socialized with language to say, hey, I feel like shit right now, right? Just that. It doesn't have to be a therapy session, right? Yep. Then all of a sudden, the systems start breaking down. The personas start breaking down. And you end up in crisis. So I want to add another layer to that. Um, Because of the workplaces that I've been in that are so diverse, that uh, like, look, I'm a privileged white woman. This so so I'm good on this, but I am acutely aware that for my LGBTQ coworkers, for my coworkers who are people of color, that division is as an impossible request. Mm-hmm. And we need to be honest. In the tech industry, is one of the reasons why not enough diverse people have succeeded, because the idea of dividing like who who you are and your lived experience, and by the way, people with mental health issues, the idea that you're just supposed to succeed and win and grind it out, but you have crippling anxiety or you have like OCD. Um, actually OCD can kind of help, but you have, um, (laughs) but you have depression and you're supposed to divide that and just keep that home in your personal life is impossible. Well, it's, 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 it's part of, you know, Laurie Siegel at, uh, at CNN did that that brilliant piece on the Silicon Valley secret. What we're really talking about is this, this correlation between the culture that we have in the tech industry, which is leave it at the door. It's a kind of binary thinking of you're either on, you're switched on or you're off. You know, it's, it's not a whole experience. So, and what you're linking, which I think is brilliant is this is part of the reason we have a diversity challenge. We have an inclusivity challenge. It's not a numbers game. No, it's not. Stop with the numbers game. Right. It's not. It's a cultural. Um, it's a cultural issue. It's a. Right. It's a structural issue. And again, it's not a diversity challenge. It's this untapped opportunity. It's. It's. 
it's um, human. Like what we need to stop just valuing again, OKRs and KPIs and win, win, win and post numbers and instead start valuing the whole people and everything they bring to our environments. And then PS, you're going to end up crushing those numbers because when you lead and your team leads with like the whole self and who they are, I don't mean sitting around a reading poetry and singing Kumbaya. I really don't, but I mean, but I mean saying like, you know, my grandma died last weekend. I'm really having a hard time with this. Can somebody proofread what I just wrote? Because like I, or I need to do like a, a second pull request on this code because I think I've probably missed things in the last 48 hours. That's so right. That's, like, yes, that's the practical application of what I'm talking about. Here. Yeah. Uh, the, my shorthand for it is to stop treating everything below the mind as a meat bag that's just out there to carry everything around. Right. We're not, we're not, we're, we're flesh and blood. We are whole humans. That's right. That's right. Including our feelings. Yep. That's right. Um, uh, I think, uh, so in my workplaces, Valentine's day is a day off. Um, I want everybody to have love in their life. I don't care if you take your mom to to lunch that day, but there's got to be somebody in your life who you love. You can't just love your coworkers and your job. How about loving yourself? Absolutely. Absolutely. But I think it's also, it's also important to love somebody else too, Jerry, um, mm-hmm. both of those things. And so, um, Valentine's day is always a day off, um, so long as I'm in charge. So mm-hmm. who knows? Mm-hmm. So I think maybe we'll start to wrap it, but the question I'm holding is where do we go with crisis text line now? Where, where are you taking it? Yeah. So we should be like nine one one for all of the other stuff, right? <laughs> so all the mental health and behavioral issues, and it should be as big as nine one one. We are at the bottom of this mountain. We're just getting started, um, and uh, you know nine one one handles like three hundred million calls a year. Um, um, we're going to do about a million this year. So yeah, we're just getting started. Yeah. Well, well, phone calls, conversations. That's right. 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 So um, we're just getting started and um, uh, and I think I'd like to bring it around the world because if we have these problems here in the United States, um, it's actually uh, really dire in places like the Mid East where there's um, not a lot of mental health professionals and in some countries, domestic violence is not illegal. It's that's, it's just what you do when you're married to someone, you can do whatever you want. Um, that's pr- their property now. Um, there's no mapping of any of these issues, right? So people don't know um, where things are happening or how often. Um, and so to have all, we didn't even talk about the use of the data for public benefit. But um, yeah, that's, so I want to bring this out to be 911 to the world. It's like a little dream, 911 to the world. Well, here here's what I see too. Um, and I've, I've said this, to my friend Brad Feld, and I've, I've, I've given my assign- this assignment to myself as well. Us old folks, and I'm throwing you in this bucket, Yeah, we kind of have a mentor responsibility. Our responsibility is to pave the way and, and, and to clear the way for, the, for, for those who are coming right behind us. I think it's more than mentor, Jerry. I think it's example. Yes. Um, I think it's example. I think we need to require this of ourselves also like right um that's right that we need to basically reset everything that winning is actually leading with your whole self leading with the product at whatever your company service or product is it's for another human like who is going to use this instead of um how is it going to be used like we need like a complete reimagining of um user experience winning 
culture that's human centric instead of just numbers. I I, I think you're right. And I think the arc of this conversation is really fascinating because we started by talking about the moments of crisis. But what we're really talking about is the moments of being human and actually making it safe to be human in the workplace. Yep. That's what we're talking about. Now, we're also talking about making it safe to be human in our lives. But I steered us to in the workplace in that way. I think that makes it very a good a good conversation, a good practical conversation. Thank you. Yeah. I want to thank you, not only for coming on this, uh, but also for making your old coach really proud. Well, I want to thank you for being that person for me and being my safe place for so long and such a good touchstone for me. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I really I appreciate you so much, Jerry. And mm-hmm. I feel really lucky to have had that one on one time with you. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the honor you. and the luck was mine. So. No, it was mine. No backsies. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you enjoyed this episode, go to reboot.io slash podcast to listen to all three seasons of our podcast conversations and leave us a review on iTunes. That's the best way for other people to find and enjoy the show just as you have done. And don't forget to join our mailing list at reboot.io slash sign up so you never miss an episode. Thank you for listening. How long till my soul gets it right? Will any human being ever reach that kind of light? I call on the resting soul of Galileo, king of night vision, king of Are you in the midst of a major life change and feeling alone in that quagmire of feelings? Are you longing for more meaning in your personal or professional life? Or are you already in the midst of the turmoil and excitement of a business or role transition? Join Reboot's guides, Jim Marsden and Jade Shear, this September 18th through 26th for a one-of-a-kind eight-day adventure in Telluride, Colorado, a Reboot quest. You'll emerge with more clarity and more you. Learn more at reboot.io slash quest.